Our Bible reading this morning is a familiar one to most of us, but it is good to um, revisit at their times. It's John chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. And it's the story of Jesus teaching Nicodemus. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named, Nic- a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God was not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you don't understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people cannot do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness... So the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates light, and will not come into the light, for fear that their deeds will be exposed." But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that they may be seen plainly that what they, what they have done has also has been done in the sight of God. May God truly bless this to our reading to our word this morning, and we look forward to just coming to give us insight into it. Thank you for that reading. The, uh, I don't think it's apocryphal story, is told by Stephen Covey in one of his uh, leadership books of a, uh, a Navy military manoeuvre at night. It was a practice off the coast of Florida. You may know the story. Uh, and uh, this massive flotilla of military craft was out in the ocean They're practicing to maneuver around each other as if it was a a real life attack. 
and not to collide with each other. So they're relying on their instruments, particularly the radar. And um, in the middle of the night, the radar operator in the major uh, battleship that was in this flotilla um, noticed this blip on the screen getting closer and closer to their craft. And uh, so he sent out a message to that particular craft and uh, he said, and gave the instruction, um, bear 20 degrees to starboard. You're on a collision course. And then a crackling young voice came back to him, um, you bear 20 degrees to starboard. And the radio operator uh, decided to uh, get some more clout and he went and got the uh, chief petty officer to come down and issue an order. And uh, the chief petty officer got hold of the microphone and he said, now here, this is a command. You bear 20 degrees to starboard. We're heading for a collision. Do it now. Which a crackling voice came back and said, um, you bear 20 degrees to the starboard. At this point, they decided to uh, go and get the captain. And or the, the captain wasn't just the captain, he was the admiral of the whole fleet. And he came down to the radio room and uh, walked in and he said, now see here, do you know who you're talking to? This is the admiral of the fleet here. Bear 20 degrees to the starboard. This is a battleship. At which point the voice came back. This is Chief Petty Officer Smith. I'm a loudhouse. At which point, the Admiral had a, what they call a massive paradigm shift. I'll explain it later. <laughs> I'll get a whiteboard out. And <laughs> but, uh, and, and I think that is what happens in this story, is that here we have a man who thought he had it all worked out up here. He could see it as it was. He was an authority this Nicodemus. On religious, legal matters, all those things were the same in the Jewish world. He was a man of the Pharisees. Not only that, he, he was a Pharisee. They were the, the professional religionists in the time of Jesus. They were the people who took faith and God and the, the word of God extremely seriously. This man had studied for years to become a teacher. In fact, later on we read he is the teacher of Israel. He's probably famous. He was like an N.T. Wright at this time of Israel. And uh, uh, what he, he said, people hung on his words and his interpretations. He had not only memorised most of the Old Testament, he would know it backwards and forwards. He'd also memorised all the great commentaries he knew all the great legal decisions over the last 500 years coming up to this point. And it's this sort of head that comes to meet Jesus. Why does he come? This man came to Jesus by night, we read in verse 2. And I don't think that's just telling us the time when John, who is so interested in the symbolism of night and dark, tells us that this man came under the cloak of darkness, that it says something about there was a shadow over his motives. It wasn't just that he was embarrassed or wanted to be, didn't want to be discovered. He may not have wanted to be seen to be endorsing Jesus' ministry, but this fellow came with a, a shadowy motive. And forget the courtesies you read about here. 
this guy, despite the pleasantries, is out to judge Jesus. This came, man came to Jesus by night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, he's about to flow on from that, but that's where his conversation sort of stopped. Now, we, we've only seen one of the signs last week, that, that miracle at Cana. But that was a sample of all the sorts of things that Jesus was doing. And Jesus was really picking up momentum. He was growing in reputation. Uh, he, John the Baptist was massively popular and Jesus has now eclipsed him. And uh, that's the pulling power of Jesus. And these Pharisees, these guardians of kosher, have decided that they better just step in here and uh, before this gets out of hand and check out this guy's credentials. And they can't dispute the fact that the guy seems to have, this Jesus, this Nazarene, this untrained person, seems to have the hand of God upon his ministry. Things are happening which no one has seen ever. And uh, that should be enough. (laughs) Nicodemus should have come and said, you're obviously from God, so what do you want of us? You instruct us. But he is about to put Jesus through a litmus test to check out his bona fides. That's a dark act. What an impudence it is to be the judge of God, the Son of God, God in flesh in in the present. And he says, we know that you do these things. He comes to represent the party of the Pharisees, that segment of the Senate of Israel that uh, he represents. But Jesus beats him to the punch. The litmus test that this guy would have asked and the burning question on the Pharisees' lips is the question of boundaries. How do you get across the boundary into that future state of the reign of God, the kingdom of God. Now, the Pharisees think they've worked that all out, and it's through abstinence, it's through diligence, it's through fasting twice a week, it's through pilgrimage, it's through almsgiving, it's through a whole life that comes under Torah, law. And they're the experts at that. And he wants to know what Jesus thinks the boundary is. And you see, he is going to either be for Jesus or against Jesus, depending upon whether Jesus agrees with his party. If Jesus is making the right noises, he has their full support. But if Jesus does not make the right noises, and he wasn't, then I'm afraid things aren't going to end well for Jesus. That's the insidious nature of this night manoeuvre as this guy docks towards Jesus. Jesus beats him to the punch though. He knows what the game is. He knows what is in men. He knows Nicodemus. And Jesus says to him, Truly, truly, which is a wife saying, mark my words, read my lips. You can quote me. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
You won't even get close to the reign of God. That situation, that state which is coming, you won't even get near the turnstiles unless you see this one fact is true of you, that you are born again. Paradigm shift. In one little phrase, Jesus is saying, forget all the science and the law of religion, all the theological tradition that your party has built up. You're not going to get near the kingdom of God unless you, and Jesus' word is ambiguous. It really means born from above. Unless God himself intervenes here, you haven't got a hope in Hades. You're not going to get near the kingdom. And that's a pretty incredible thing to say to a guy whose whole life and whole heritage and his father's lives and his father's before them has been geared towards snuggling up to the boundary and making sure they've got their life insurance all cut and dried. But Jesus says, oh, don't won't do you a cracker of good. There's one condition of entry. And in this passage, we read this same condition described three ways. This is the first. You must be born from above, literally. A few years ago, I was um, supervising a, a, a doctoral student at the college I was working at. And this fellow had come out of another system. He, he was studying with... A, a group of colleges that are not evangelical, they don't hold a high view of the scriptures, they have a higher view of human tradition than they do of the scriptures. And yet I'd known this guy years before as a young Christian when he truly had been saved and he knew the gospel. And here he is doing a thesis on missiology, on the science of mission, how to reach people for Jesus. And as I was reading this rather uh, long thesis and supervising him and giving him advice and he'd send in a chapter and he'd read it and he'd make comment, I started to notice an assumption coming through his thesis, chapter after chapter. And the assumption was that everyone one day would be saved. There's nothing to worry about in the universe. And uh, I thought, this is not what you believe. And so I challenged him about it. Next time he came in, I sat down and I said, Fred, where do you hang your hat on salvation? What do you really believe? And his words were interesting. He came out with this phrase, I don't like the way you're trying to box me into modernist categories. You see, he was a postmodernist now. And uh, I said, well, <laughs> I apologise for all that boxing business, but um, uh, I just want to know, what do you believe? Do you believe what the scriptures say? You must be born again. And he said, well, in Melbourne, it's a much more inclusive theology. So you're saying... When in Melbourne, you believe what the Liberals believe. Yes! <laughs> Basically, I'm a contextual theologian. And what he was telling me is that when in certain company, it's not worth believing must-like statements. 
And it's as if Jesus, if he came and he was speaking in one college in the city, he would say, you must be born again. And in the other college, he would say, I prefer born again. (laughs) But don't take my word for it. This is absolute nonsense. Jesus makes it patently clear that there is an imperative for every human being, for everyone sitting here this morning, that if you're going to get into the final game, if you're going to get through the turnstiles, if God is going to allow you to enjoy his future, you must be born again. It's an irrevocable condition. You can forget what the scholarly consensus is. Jesus is not concerned about the consensus. He's concerned about the truth of God. The scholarly consensus. I am sick to death with the scholarly consensus. I used to put big red marks on the essays of students who would write that phrase. Most scholars believe. Jesus says, to hell with what the scholars believe. This is truth. This is where you've got to pin your hat. You must be born again. From above. It's not a vote taken in heaven amongst the scholars. It's the only way to salvation. Verse 4 to 6, Nicodemus said, and taking Jesus a little literally, he said, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? You see, he's he's taking the idea at a literal uh, historical level. And probably what he's getting at is um, the idea that the Pharisees had that occasionally you'd have a spring clean and you'd go back and you'd examine and you'd ransack your conscience for, for peccadilloes and misdemeanors where you had blotted your copybook and uh, they had this whole system of of baptisms and washings for basically like a new year's resolution where you would start again and you would and and Nicodemus saying well how far do you want me to go back all the way back to my mother's womb I mean you know you can't teach an old dog new tricks I mean it's a lot of water's passed under the bridge and Jesus says to him you're not getting it That's not what I'm on about. Jesus said again, mark my words. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot say the kingdom of God. A second way of saying the same thing. Unless one is born of water and spirit, in his language, if Jesus is speaking Aramaic, and I don't know Aramaic, I'm just trying to pretend to be a scholar here, but if Jesus is speaking Aramaic, Jesus would be saying unless you are purified by the Spirit of God, you can't be entering the kingdom of God. You won't get in. The, the, the sort of stuff that you see in an airport lounge while waiting for a plane, that when you go to the airport bookshops, I like walking in and looking at the business section and the self-improvement section. It's amazing how much uh, is similar each year you stand there looking at those books they always are telling you about your unrealized potential i've got so much potential they've written thousands of books about it 
And you can stand there, and they're always big print books. They're not hard to, to read. And, and you pick up the theme that, you know, basically if you just go back and uh, you revisit, you know, you revisit the family or you revisit your career or you revisit your identity, you'll be able to reconstruct yourself and build up again. You get it right this time. If only life wasn't so short. <laughs> and Nicodemus, that's the way he's thought. That you can basically go back, have a spring clean, have a baptism, a, a, and then you start, you wipe the whiteboard clean and you start again. And Jesus is saying, that is just not, that is not what it is to be born again. It isn't a making a New Year's resolution. It isn't something you do. You must be born and cleansed by the Holy Spirit himself. He is the one who purifies you. You see, Jesus is telling Nicodemus, who has tried to keep his nose clean and his hands clean and his feet clean and his mind clean, he's been meticulous about kosher cleanness. And Jesus is saying to him, despite all that, you are impure. You need cleansing. And this is why the gospel is so offensive to the average person, especially the religious expert. Because it cuts away all our pretense. And it says you are sinful. There is something wrong with you at the moral level. You like sin. We all do. And so if we're going to get near the holy city, if we're going to snuggle up to the gate of the kingdom, we're going to have to be purified. And there's only one place that the purification can come from, and that's the Holy Spirit of God himself. He has to go deeper to cleanse us. We just can't pull ourselves up by the bootlaces, wipe our whiteboard clean, get a new diary and think it's all going to be well. Years ago, I remember seeing my father embarrass me publicly. He went along at Monash University and uh, when he was a professor there and, and there was a public meeting. Someone had invited a Hindu guru along. So I can't remember the name of the guy. He was just Hindu, obviously wearing... Hindu robes and big long grey beard and everyone was hanging on his words and he gave this wonderful speech about, do you know we need world peace? I thought, that's original. <laughs> and then they had a question time and no one was asking any questions. My father put up his hand and he says, what do you do about those sins? He mentioned the S word in public. What do you do about those sins that you've committed? And the guru, stunned, he sort of went back on his heels and he pulled his beard and he thought, I guess you just try and forget them. This expert on religion, his best suggestion for sin was suppression, which we all know leads to neurosis. The Bible and Jesus' suggestion for sin is that you cannot suppress it out of existence. You must call on God to deal with sin. Only the holy God can purify an unholy and an unclean heart. We are in desperate need of God doing that to enter the kingdom of God. 
Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. They're totally different currencies. You just cannot do it yourself. At this point, I think, <laughs> I think Nicodemus's jaw would have dropped and, and he, he was gobsmacked and Jesus could see his face and this guy was, I didn't expect to hear this. I expected to get some dirt on you that I might use against you, but I didn't expect to totally have my tradition overhauled and his face is just a giveaway and Jesus says you're marveling about this when I say you must be born again but the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it and you don't know where it comes from or where it goes so it is with everyone who is born of the spirit this is a third aspect here Jesus uses a bit of a pun here he says, the wind blows where it, whiz, where it wills, like wind having a will. But we understand in this language that the word for wind is the same word as the word for spirit. And Jesus is saying there is a homologous natural parallel here between the two. Uh, and the other day I was out in the garden trying to clear away some debris in our garden uh, before a storm came and I could see the grey but all of a sudden in the middle of the afternoon there was this rustle of the treetops above and I don't know where it came from I didn't know it was about to happen I couldn't set my stopwatch to it I couldn't uh, tell you where it was going and where it went and it's just the same with God we humans love to understand how God works we love formulae we like to be able to understand before we believe but Jesus says it's not like that with the Spirit. The Spirit is sovereign. And he swoops in at his discretion. He initiates salvation when and where he wants. And we're totally dependent on that. That makes me feel a little uneasy. I want to have all my philosophical conundrums tied up. I want to know what about free will? And Jesus says we're not going to get an answer. The wind blows where he wills. Just thank God that the wind blows. And he makes a decision of where to come. High religion of all that we can tell error because they've got it all worked out. High religion, high theology always has a nice scientific formula. You've got to say so many Hail Marys and you'll get out of this punishment you've got to fast so much and that will equate in some transaction in heaven with forgiveness you've got to pay for these indulgences you've got to go on these pilgrimages you've got to give this many alms and depending on what religion or what parish you're in there's always a formula with untruth when men start to invent religion they like the ends tied up and that's how you can tell it's invented but with spirit religion, we depend on a God who is sovereign and he makes the decision. Salvation, it's, it's not a matter of a moral makeover. It's not a matter of which college you're in. Salvation is the sovereign work of the spirit. Makes you a bit uneasy. But here is the good side of that. Do you know? that if you love Jesus and you believe him to be who he said he was, then a miracle has happened right in your temple. He has intersected with you, he has found you, and that wind has blown where he wanted to.
He wanted you to know that. And I prefer to rest on that, that this God is sovereign and he has made a decision for me that I should see Jesus for who he really was and come to trust in him. Nicodemus basically said, how can these things be? Jesus said, you're a teacher of Israel. You call yourself a teacher. You're a man. He's got so close to the words that he can't see the truth. He just doesn't know how significant these things are in the scripture. Truly, truly, now Jesus turns and the shoe is on the other foot. Truly, truly, mark my words. I say to you, we speak of what we know. My college, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, <laughs> we know about these things, not because we've agreed about it in a scholarly consensus, not because we sit on a great tradition going back to some pioneer of the faith. We know these things personally. Jesus speaks of matters which we have to acknowledge. Jesus is not just our prophet or our preferred teacher. He is the man of heaven. He is the son of man. And this is what he goes on to say. We speak of what we know and he means personally, what we've experienced personally. And we bear witness to what we have seen, but you don't receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And I think what Jesus is getting at in verse 13 is, you know, I've begun with the most fundamental theological proposition, the earthly thing that spiritual salvation is the work of God's spirit. You have to accept that. That's number one. And I would love to tell you of more difficult truths, but I don't think you're capable of absorbing them. And it's not cognitive, it's a spiritual, moral issue. But no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, he says, the Son of Man. You know, this is the one who has been to the kingdom. Isn't that a phenomenal thing? The Jesus we worship, the Jesus that this guy was seeing face to face that morning... That evening, sorry, it was probably morning by now, but he, he is the one who, who has been to the kingdom and come back. He goes back and forth through the ether of the universe, the created into the uncreate and back again. He is totally free to enter this world when and where he will in what shape and form and time he will and he does and that's the authority that he speaks from. But then he says, and you should have known these things, Nicodemus. These things were in the scriptures. There are all these prophecies in Jeremiah and Ezekiel about the new covenant, about the spirit being poured out in Joel, etc. And those things are taken up by the apostles after Jesus rises and they suddenly understand these matters. But Nicodemus, he's saying, you could have read these things for yourself. They're, they're not my theory. They're there all the time. Here's one of like you try and for size, he says. Verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, referring to that funny event in Numbers 22, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. And he's saying, you see, Nicodemus, even there in that curious story 
when people, the people of Israel are in the desert, in the book of Numbers, they're on their way to the promised land, and they keep on getting bitten by serpents. And the people cry out to Moses, and Moses cries out to God, and God says, I tell you what to do, place this stake in a visible position in the middle of the camp with a serpent wrapped around it. It's where the, the pharmacists get their symbol. And if people will look to that, it seems like such a dumb act to do, but they look at this and they trust that I have said this, they will not suffer from the venom of the serpent and the viper. And they survived. But you see what Jesus is saying? He is saying that even in those little things, those seemingly silly tangents that you get in the Old Testament, those things are placed there so that God might tell us that he has already decided to send the Son to deal with the venom of venoms that goes back to Eden. That garden where Adam invited the serpent to give his advice. When he should have shunned the serpent and sent him out of the garden, instead, perversely, instead of trusting the God who made him and loved him, he decided to trust and we went down the drain with him at that point, the liar from the pit of hell. What a choice we made in our grandpa. To distrust the lover of our soul and trust the liar, the accuser, who wanted to destroy everything good. But we did. And even then in Moses' day, Jesus is saying, I put a stake in that ground that I'm thinking about you, that I haven't forgotten you, and that I'm coming to finally deal with the serpent and the venom which is killing you all. If only you will look to me like the people of Israel look to that serpent, you will be saved. You will enter the kingdom of God. You will have life indestructible. Not a bad deal, is it? And then salvation is the sovereign work of God. And it says that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You see what Jesus has done? He has said, first of all, we must be born from above. It's got to be God's initiative. Secondly, he says to be saved, you cannot clean up your act. You must be cleansed intrinsically by the very work of the Holy Spirit. And then he says that you must trust in the death of a son for the sins of the world of disbelief. And you'll enter. He is saying that the work of the Spirit, if you want to know whether you are saved, do I have that Spirit? Have I been cleansed enough for God to let me into his heaven? The answer is, do I believe that Jesus is the solution to my sin. Because that is the work of the Spirit. Or do you quote that globetrotter from Tarsus that I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Jew first, Greek second. When you believe, that is God's purification. That is God's invasion into your life or else it wouldn't happen. That's the mark of salvation. I had a friend a few years ago, and I find it repeatedly through pastoral life, 
This guy uh, had left our church and got mixed up with other, other groups. And down the track, he was saying this sort of thing. I can't remember the words exactly, but the essence of it was, you know, I believed in Jesus and thank you for introducing me to Jesus those many years ago, not many years ago, but, um, and I'm waiting for the Spirit to come. I want to receive the Spirit in his fullness. Now, that's a statement which is entirely sincere, but tragically in error. You don't wait for the Spirit. It's the breath of God that has actually brought you that faith in Christ so that when you look at him, you love him and you trust him. Amen. End of story. Much more to experience, but there is no wait. We must understand that salvation is those three things at once. The mystery of God's work bringing our response of faith. And at this point, the Apostle John, basically, he can't bear it and he leaves the story. It's like the narrator walking onto the stage in the middle of the show and the curtains are pulled back and John 16 to 21 is actually the writer of the gospel speaking, no longer Jesus, we're not part of that story. John basically is saying, did you get it? (laughs) Did you see it? And he comes out with the immortal words that you could recite in your sleep. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Did you see that he's saying? That who, I don't want you to miss this point. That whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have eternal life. For God didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but the world might be saved through him. So whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he not believed in the name of the only son of God. This statement is critical. He is saying two things again. I hope you noticed that the love of God for you has sent the Son, not because love saves. Love of God doesn't save you. You are not saved by the love of God, nor are you saved by loving God in return. It's not some emotional transaction where God senses our warm fuzzies and he goes, oh gosh, go on, come in. How can I resist those nice things you're singing at me? That's not the deal. God sends his son to die for the perversity of our sin, which has no excuse. And he willingly does that. He goes to the grave. He takes our sin upon himself. He bears the rejection of the Father so that if we believe on him, we would not perish but have eternal life. You know, I think this year has been an interesting year. The number of people, the greats in my life, who have either become become beset with dementia or died. People used to pray for me early in ministry. People who I looked up to. It's a phenomenal period. You get to this period of life and suddenly the lampposts are going. Yeah, that's a pretty most time if it wasn't for this fact that those people are actually leaving the curse of Adam to accept the blessing of the second Adam. And they're actually living in a fullness of life 
that we can only dream of. If one of those saints that have departed out of my family tree came through that door in their state this morning and they walked through that door and we turned our heads, we'd have terrible trouble to stop falling on our knees and worshipping them in their glorified state. And that's what awaits us all. When sin is dealt with, abundance follows that you cannot conceive of. And those of you who've got the aches and pains, those of you who aren't what you used to be, we should actually envy you because you're closer to that hour when you will see this Jesus put out the hand and welcome you into his kingdom. But you have to follow a condition. You must believe in him. You must believe in him. And I say this this morning, I am never working off the assumption as a pastor that the people listening to me have made that eternal transaction. You may be sitting here and thinking, I'm right with God because I'm a Baptist. Or I'm right because I've got bishops in my family tree. Or I'm right because I give to world vision. Or I'm right because I am scrupulous about my morality. And Jesus says, you know, I have a word for that stuff. I call it evil. You think you can obligate me to let you into my kingdom. That is the heart of sin. When I am offering free ticket entry, Use my membership card, my name, my work, my love, my active defeat of sin at Calvary. You must be born again. What a crazy thing to say. It's not something you do, it's something you let do. You must be born again. And Jesus this morning and my obligation to him. And I have to face him with this. Have I made this clear? Do you realise that you have to use Jesus' method to get into his kingdom? I hope I've made that clear. You must let him purify you. If you think you're pure enough, you're not ready for the kingdom of God. You must let him regenerate you. If you think you're special enough, you haven't got the idea. Being spiritual won't cut it. You must be born from above, by him, cleansed by his spirit. And the moment you look at Jesus and see that he has taken the price for your sin, the penalty for your perversity, you are born again. That's all he asks. We're going to bow our heads in prayer right now. And let us talk to this God. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for a quiet moment in eternity. In this little period of history, in this small speck of a place, where everything is clear 
and the light of your word has shone in our hearts. Our Lord and our God, we would simply pray that your spirit would convict and pour himself out into the hearts of those who are yet to know you, truly. And would assure them that you welcome them if they welcome Christ as their saviour and sin bearer. And for those of us, Lord, who have done that but weren't quite sure where we stood, we pray this morning that you will make it clear through your spirit that your one condition of entry is that we see on the cross our sole means of salvation. Make these things clear in this moment. And all we would simply say, Lord, is thank you for our good fortune of being able to eavesdrop this conversation hundreds of years ago that you might shift our paradigms and free us from those false assumptions which could damn us eternally. We thank you, Lord, for this word and we pray that you'd make it real to us in the days to come. Amen. Mine. <laughs>